if you do the right thing, God will bless you. Uh, is, that, is that true or false? If you do the right thing, God will bless you. Uh, we, we assume that's how it works. Uh, and, and that is true uh, as long as we remember that God's blessing might not look like what we think it will. God's blessing might not look like what we think it will. If we do the right thing, we, we will be vindicated in the end. But it, it might be many long and painful years uh, before that happens. And we have a, a, a reminder of that in this chapter and the next chapter with Joseph. He, he does the right thing. He, he stands up to temptation. Uh, and yet as a result, his life suddenly becomes much harder. That's one uh, important truth that we learn from the chapter in front of us. But before we we go any further into this chapter, I want to flag up that there are two uh, different ways we can approach a passage like this. Uh, We can look at it in a way that looks at Joseph as a pattern for us uh, and tries to find techniques for fighting sin. Or we can look at it in a way that magnifies Joseph's God uh, and recognizes that rather than being the pattern himself, Joseph's life actually follows the pattern of a greater son of Jacob. Now the first approach isn't uh, completely wrong, so so let's look at the chapter from that angle for a couple of minutes, uh, because surely Joseph is being held up as an example for us here. It's hard to miss the contrast with Judah in the last chapter. Uh, Again, one of the reasons why chapter 38 isn't actually out of place. It it provides a contrast. Joseph is here forcibly removed from the people of God and taken to a foreign land. Whereas in the last chapter, Judah left willingly. Joseph here resists sin when it's right in front of him, when it's being almost forced on him, uh, when it would have made things uh, so much easier for him just to go along with it. Whereas in the last chapter, Judah saw an opportunity for sin. Uh, No one was telling him to do it. No one was pressurizing him to do it. Uh, but, But he sins anyway. With Judah, those around him, uh, particularly his daughter-in-law, suffer because of his sin. But here, Joseph chooses to suffer rather than to sin. We probably wouldn't want to talk about it in terms of techniques for fighting sin, but, but certainly Joseph's running from Potiphar's wife is a powerful illustration of the call in Second Timothy to flee youthful passions. Or 1 Corinthians 6, to flee from sexual immorality. In fact, maybe Paul had Joseph in mind as he wrote those verses. Maybe that's, uh, that's the image he had of fleeing in his mind. Uh, so there are things that we can learn from that sort of approach. But perhaps the danger of such approaches is that they usually end with the conclusion that that Joseph was faithful. uh, And because he was faithful, God blessed him in prison and would eventually bless him by raising him uh, to second in command in all Egypt. After all, is that not what verse 23 is teaching? The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Um, Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. But the problem with 
that and the problem with making this chapter all about Joseph is that it ignores the, the repeated theme of the chapter itself. The fact that God is with Joseph, it isn't just the conclusion to this chapter, but it's the starting point and the theme of this chapter. And that explains everything else. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph And then uh, verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. So here is a man, not who the Lord was with because of his faithfulness, but here is a man who was faithful because the Lord was with him. Maybe that seems a bit like nitpicking, but it does make a big difference as to whether we think God is saying to us fight sin in your own strength and I will be with you or whether we hear what God is actually saying here I am with you and so you're able to fight sin if we read this chapter and miss its repeated emphasis from the very beginning that the Lord was with Joseph then we're going to get the chapter wrong Uh, When passages of the Bible uh, repeat phrases like this, uh, we need to pay attention to that. Something else that we we notice if we pay closer attention to this chapter is that the name for God that's used here is significant. Again and again in this chapter, God is called the Lord. For example, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, his masters saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. In fact, the name the Lord occurs eight times in this chapter compared with only four times in the rest of the whole section about Joseph. Eight times in this one chapter compared to four times in 13 chapters. So why is that significant? What should this name, the Lord, make us think about? Well, the Lord, written in capitals in our Bibles, is the covenant name of God that he revealed to his people. God is just the general name for God or even a God. Uh, The gods of the nations around there they're gods with a small g. Uh, God is God with it with a big g. Uh, but the same word is used for them all. Whereas the name the Lord is tied up uh, with the God who makes covenant promises to His people. Uh, the Lord is the specific name of Israel's God. This is the God who picked the family of Abraham out of all the families of the earth and made these amazing promises to them. Uh, So when we see the name, the Lord, think of of a God who makes and keeps promises. And what were those promises? Well, we could sum them up in the words of Genesis 26, verse 3, when God appears to Isaac and says, I will be with you and I will be bless you. And I will bless you. I will be with you. And I will bless you. And that's what we should think 
back to when we hear the repeated refrain of this chapter that the Lord was with Joseph. Despite the fact that Joseph had been carted off from his own land, Joseph wasn't beyond the reach of God's promises. And in Joseph, God was fulfilling the promise he had made to his great-grandfather Abraham. So when this chapter stresses, uh, when it says that the Lord was with Joseph, it's saying that God had remembered Joseph and was keeping his covenant promises to him. But the the second part of that, that promise, I will be with you and I will bless you. Or as it is to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So... In other words, blessing would flow to the nations of the earth through this one family. And ultimately through their great descendant, Jesus Christ. And we see an initial fulfillment of that promise here in verse 5. For the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had. The lesson here isn't that Joseph was so good and diligent that Potiphar was blessed as a result, uh, though, though Joseph was good and diligent, but rather Joseph is here bringing God's blessing to the Gentiles in fulfilment of God's promise. It doesn't mean Potiphar was saved, uh, but it is just a little reminder of that promise that the nations would be blessed through the family of Abraham. And so Potiphar is blessed, not simply because of Joseph's character, but because of who Joseph is and because of God's promises to him and his family. Just a little reminder here that the very reason God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans was to bring blessing to the world. Uh, and we should never forget this when we, when we look at this one family as we've been doing for so long in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Judah. God is working through this one family to bring blessing to the nations. So what's happening in this chapter in, in the big picture? God is fulfilling his promises. I will be with you. Both in being with Joseph and in blessing the Egyptian household because of him. And so as we read this chapter, our overwhelming thought shouldn't be, whoa, what a great guy Joseph was, but whoa, look how faithful God is. He's doing exactly what he had promised to do. And the fact that Joseph was far away from the promised land couldn't stop God fulfilling his promises. And that will be true for you as well. Wherever you end up, whatever happens, whatever unexpectedly comes into your life, nothing will be able to stop God fulfilling his promises to you and through you. And now as we come on to to the temptation that Joseph faces, uh, we see that by the grace of this God, Joseph remains faithful when he's tempted. It's not just that Joseph resists temptation once, but again and again and again. Often we maybe resist temptation the first time and the second time, 
but, but there's that verse in, in Hebrews, you have not yet endured to the point of the shedding of blood. We, we resist for a little while and then give in. And we see how Jesus' temptation, we wonder, was it a real temptation if, if he couldn't sin? But actually, Jesus experienced temptation to a level far greater than we ever have because, because we, we always give up too soon. We give in too soon when Jesus resisted all the way. And put yourself in Joseph's shoes in this chapter because surely there would have been the temptation for Joseph to think, well, I've been through something fairly traumatic. I've been kidnapped from my home country and so I deserve this. What would be wrong with a bit of pleasure after all I've been through? The way someone might say, my life hasn't turned out the way I hoped, so I deserve a bit of pleasure. I, I want to be married, but it hasn't happened, so I deserve this. Or I am married, but it hasn't turned out the way I'd hoped, so, so who can blame me? Surely God wants me to be happy, doesn't He? But in the face of, of the temptation, in the face of the suggestions of Satan, Joseph remains steadfast. But it's not just that he grits his teeth and tries to resist by sheer willpower simply because he grudgingly accepts that it's the right thing to do. Rather, for Joseph, the main reason he refuses Potiphar's wife is because he loves God more than he loved that sin. He loved God more than he loved that sin. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. Behold, because of me, my master is no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Yes, to commit this sin would have been disloyal to Potiphar. It would have been a, a breach of the trust that his master had shown in him. And Joseph says as much, but what's the conclusion of his argument? Well, he sees sin for what it is, and he sees sin for who it's against. He sees sin for, for what it is, and he sees it for who it's against. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He sees sin as the, the plague of plagues, as Ralph Venning, a Puritan who, who lived through uh, the, the Black Death or the, the plague in London, uh, he wrote the book The Plague of Plagues. Uh, that is what sin is. He sees, he sees how wicked it is. Uh, we, we use words for, for sin, sin or, or euphemisms for sin. Uh, Potiphar's wife say, says, Come and lie with me. Joseph says, it is a great wickedness. And he sees as well what it is. It's against God. It's against God. Yes, the sin would have been against Potiphar, but far more than that, it was against God. And for Joseph, we have here more than simply a bare fear that God might punish him for it. 
But Joseph resists this sin because he, he loves God and because God has been good to him. Joseph knows what it is to live life in the presence of God. The chapter emphasizes this time and time again. And he values the presence of God. He values communion with God too much uh, to just throw it away. Too much to, to, to risk it uh, for the fleeting pleasures of sin. There may be times in our lives when the only reason we don't do something is because we grudgingly acknowledge that it's wrong. Or because we know what the consequences will be. But if those are our only reasons for obeying God, will not last long. One of the most famous uh, sermons ever preached in Scotland was by Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers was one of the leaders of the Free Church of Scotland when it was formed. And he once preached a sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It it was based around 1 John 2.15. Uh, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And the point of Chalmers' sermon was that we can only stop loving the world if we replace it with the love of God. He says it's not enough to tell ourselves that the world isn't worthy of our love. It's not enough to tell ourselves that the world will let us down in the end. Those things are true, but that would be like using a pump to to try and suck air out of the container of our lives. It would leave leave a vacuum behind. It would leave a hunger still, a longing to be filled. Whereas the other option is to come to see God as vastly more worthy of our love than the world. And that's like filling the container with water. Water displaces the air. The the new affection drives out the old one. The the new love for God drives out the old love for the world. That's what he means by the expulsive power of a new affection. A a new affection for God that drives out the old affection for the world. Obeying God just because you think it's the right thing to do. Well, you can do that outwardly and you can do it for a while but it won't last. And even while it does last, a merely outward obedience that's done through gritted teeth doesn't please God. Christianity is first and foremost about heart transformation. Yes, life transformation will follow, but if we think life transformation is the main thing, we'll end up like the Pharisees. I've referred to the fact that the service after communion is known as a thanksgiving service. And thankful people should be obedient people. A big part of our motivation for obedience should be thanksgiving at what God has done for us. Uh, That's how the Heidelberg Catechism is structured. Guilt, grace and gratitude. Uh, Guilt, uh, what we are by nature. Grace, what God has done for us in Christ. And then gratitude our response and so we should live uh, out of thanksgiving for what god has done for us but not in the sense of a of a transaction not in terms of well god sent his son to die for me so i guess i'd better live for him now but rather thanksgiving out of a heart that's overwhelmed at how kind god has been to us
Joseph doesn't say to Potiphar's wife, I'd like to, but, but I probably shouldn't. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? A word that God would give each of us a, that view of sin. Joseph sees here what we so often forget. That first and foremost our sin is, is not against other people, even those we've hurt. But first and foremost our sin is against God. R.C. Sproul was a man in America who God used to bring a lot of people to, uh, to the Reformed faith. Uh, and one of the, the phrases he used a lot was the, the Latin phrase, Coram Deo. It means before the face of God or in the presence of God. And Sproul said that was the big idea of the Christian life. It was the goal of the Christian life to live in the consciousness that at every moment we're living in the presence of God. Not out of a reluctant submission to that fact, but offering our lives as living sacrifices in a spirit of adoration and gratitude. And that's Joseph here. He knows that he lives every moment before the face of God. That as he, he goes about his daily chores in Potiphar's wife, as he interacts with the different people in that house, he's living before the face of God. That is Joseph, and by God's grace, more and more so, that is to be us as well. This, this consciousness at every moment of our lives, uh, not just when we're reading our Bibles, not just when we're at Bible study or at church, but every moment of our lives that we're living before the face of God. So by God's grace, Joseph resists this sin. And what happens when he obeys? Is he blessed? Well, not in the sense that things go well for him outwardly, but yes, in the sense that God is still present with him. Things don't go well for Joseph outwardly. Whether Potiphar is completely convinced by his wife's story or not, he throws Joseph in prison. Uh, some suggest that the more likely fate of Joseph would have been execution. So, so perhaps the fact that Potiphar only puts him in prison shows that Potiphar is maybe in a bit of doubt about his wife's story and isn't quite convinced about Joseph's guilt. Uh, but, but either way, he ends up in prison and as we'll see from Psalm 105, uh, which we'll sing at the end about Joseph's uh, hands being in chains and his feet being in irons, it was no walk in the park. But the Lord was with Joseph, verse 21, and showed him steadfast love. Things do not go well for Joseph outwardly, but the Lord is with him. If Joseph commits adultery with Potiphar's wife, outwardly things would have gone better for him. But he would have lost that sense of God's presence. So let's not confuse things going well for us in worldly terms for God being present with us. The two things may go together, but just because things are going well for us doesn't mean that God is with us. And on the flip side, just because things are going badly for us doesn't mean that God isn't with us. We see that with Joseph in prison and we see it with Jesus on the cross. 
Even when our Saviour cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had not abandoned him. In fact, his father was never more pleased with him than at that moment. God the Father was never more pleased with his son than at that moment. One verse we didn't get into this morning was John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. In Jesus' experience, he felt forsaken by his Father. But his Father loved him because of what he was doing. And that brings us to what I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, that Joseph's life isn't being shown primarily as a pattern for us. Rather, Joseph's life is itself following the pattern of the life of a greater son of Jacob. And that greater son of Jacob is Jesus Christ. His life is a pattern for Joseph and it's a pattern for us as well. Let's look at this pattern in this chapter. What happens to Joseph in this chapter? He's a man who God is clearly with. His coming means blessing for the Gentiles, but he's falsely accused. And even though he's done no wrong, he's sentenced and numbered with the transgressors. And yet what looks for him like disaster was actually a necessary part of God's plan. And what seems like it's going to be the end of the story turns out to be anything but That's all true of Joseph, and it's all true of Jesus Christ. Joseph's story points us to a far bigger story. In fact, it it points us to the biggest story of all. Have you ever thought about exactly what it means when we read that after the resurrection, when Jesus was talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that he began with Moses and all the prophets interpreting to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does it mean he began with Moses? Well, for a start, in our Bibles, Moses doesn't turn up until the book of Exodus. And if, if, we, if, we, if we know that, and we just think that beginning with Moses means going to Exodus, going to Moses, uh, and looking at some of the things Moses personally said, that, then, then we've got that slightly wrong, because the first five books of the Old Testament are known as the books of Moses, because Moses wrote them. So to say beginning with Moses, it means beginning at the start of the Bible, including Genesis But then there's a bit where it says that Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I think we probably tend to limit that too much. We perhaps limit that to specific prophecies, such as when Moses says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Uh, We looked at that a, a few weeks ago, a very, very clear prophecy of the Lord Jesus. We, we go to things like that or we, we go to the sacrifices or the, the blood on the doorposts and so on. Specific things that clearly point forward to Jesus. And all those things are, are, are right and good. But maybe we don't go far enough. Because we don't tend to include patterns in the Old Testament 
pointing forward to Jesus. Whereas Jesus is actually foreshadowed not just in the words and symbols of Scripture, but in the patterns as well. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Just this past week I was reading Mark chapter 9. It's the bit just after the transfiguration when Jesus and three of his disciples are coming down the mountain. And the disciples start asking him why the scribes say that Elijah was going to come back. It's a reference to an Old Testament prophecy where God said that he would send Elijah before the day of the Lord came. And Jesus explains that the prophecy was speaking of John the Baptist, whose ministry was very much like Elijah's in a number of ways. But then Jesus adds a comment that, that made me wonder this week. Because Jesus says, I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So Jesus is saying that Elijah, that is John the Baptist, has come, that he's been badly treated. In fact, he's been killed. But then Jesus adds those words that caught my attention, as it is written of him. So where in the Old Testament does it say that John the Baptist would be persecuted? Well, you'll actually look in vain to find any verse that, that prophecies, prophesies that John the Baptist would be persecuted. Yes, it said that he would come, but, but there's no verse that says he would be persecuted. So what is Jesus referring to? You know, Jesus says, as it is written of him, but there's no one verse that you can turn back to that, that says anything would happen to John the Baptist. But Jesus is referring to the pattern of Elijah's life. The original Elijah was persecuted. And so when we're told that a second Elijah is coming, we can be sure that he will be persecuted too. The point is, Jesus says, as it is written, John the Baptist will be persecuted. And we know that Jesus doesn't make mistakes. But there's no one verse you can footnote and say, this is an Old Testament prophecy that said John the Baptist will be persecuted. There isn't one. But Jesus can, can say it is written because the Bible gives us a pattern, a pattern written down for us. Elijah, uh, the forerunner of Elisha, was persecuted. And so we can take it that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, will be persecuted too. Jesus says it is written and he refers not to any one verse but to the pattern. And in the same way, there might not be a single verse in this chapter that's footnoted in the gospel accounts. But what we have here is still telling us what the Messiah would be like. It's telling us about his humiliation. It's telling us that he would be falsely accused. Did those living before the time of Jesus understand that this chapter gives us a picture of what the Messiah would be like? Probably not. But it did teach them a pattern which they would recognise whenever Jesus came. And which he himself no doubt pointed people back to in those days between his resurrection and his ascension. And what is that pattern? It's a pattern of a beloved son rejected and betrayed by his own people, handed over to the Gentiles, 
falsely accused and numbered with the transgressors. There may not be any cross-references in this chapter to, to the Gospels, but the pattern is clear. But of course, Jesus isn't just Joseph number two. He's not just a second Joseph. He's the true and better Joseph. Joseph was taken from his father unwillingly, but Jesus came willingly. Joseph faced the wrath of Potiphar. Jesus faced the wrath of God. Joseph was imprisoned. Jesus was crucified. Joseph would be later raised up from prison, but Jesus would be raised up from the grave itself. And the pattern is right here. And just as we close tonight, this is the pattern of your life as well. Not primarily because it was Joseph's pattern, but because it is the pattern of your Saviour. The pattern of the believer's life is first suffering and then glory. So if you're suffering for your faithfulness to Jesus Christ tonight, whether that's in terms of open persecution, whether it's in terms of people making life harder for you, or whether it's more in terms of the suffering that comes from missing out on things that you could have had if you'd chosen an easier path. Avenues you could have gone down in your life, but because of your love for Jesus Christ, you chose not to. Well, remember that if you are suffering, if you, if you, if you still feel an emptiness because of those decisions, a sense that you're maybe missing out on something, remember that nothing has gone wrong. Making hard decisions for God may not result in outward blessing. Things may get harder for many years as they do for Joseph here. But even in the midst of it, you can know God's presence with you. And your story will end as Joseph's story does and as Jesus' story does with vindication and with receiving from the Lord, the righteous judge, a crown of righteousness. Amen. Well, we, we've seen the pattern. Uh, now we sing about the pattern of our Lord Jesus in Joseph's life. It's Psalm 105, Psalm 105, 12 to 16. Psalm 105, 12 to 16. What's happening in this chapter? Well, in the words of verse 12 here, God was sending a man ahead of them. Uh, that's speaking about Joseph sending someone ahead of his people so that when famine came, they could be provided for. And for that to happen, Joseph would need to end up in jail. He would need to meet the, the cupbearer of Pharaoh uh, and he would need to have that connection so he could end up in Pharaoh's presence. It all needed to happen. It was all part of God's plan. God had sent Joseph ahead of them. Joseph, you know, he's dragged away with, with tears. Uh, we saw that, that last time the brothers uh, think back to, to his tears and his screams. Uh, Joseph was sent reluctantly, but, but he was sent ultimately by God, even though he didn't realize it at the time. Jail looked like a defeat for Joseph, just as the cross looked like a defeat for Jesus. 
But it was all part of God's great plan of salvation for his people. So Psalm 105, 12 to 16, the tune Newington 123 will stand and sing praise. <laughs> 